I'm Glenn Richards, and my guest is retired broadcast journalist and author Bob Keeling. He's the author of two fascinating music books that center on Florida, Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock, and Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida. His latest book, just published in early March by University Press of Florida, along with Florida Humanities, is Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. It explores the musical and cultural impact of the Beatles in Florida, an important part of the revolution that helped make the Fab Four a worldwide phenomenon. Bob was going to be doing a book presentation and book signing at the Matheson History Museum in Gainesville, Saturday, March 25th, from 4 to 5.30 p.m. The event is free with registration. You can find out all about it at mathesonmuseum.org events. Bob Keeling previewed his book in October during the Tom Petty weekend, which is really appropriate because the Beatles had a profound influence on Petty and other future Rock and Roll Hall of Famers in and around Gainesville. Don Felder and Bernie Ledden from the Eagles, uh, Bernie's brother Tom Ledden, who was in Mud Crutch with Tom Petty, uh, Ronnie Van Zant from Leonard Skinner, and really aspiring musicians everywhere after they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in February of 64. Bob? The Beatles are probably the most well-documented band in history, and yet you found a really unique way to uh, to talk about them. Congratulations on this exceptional book. Oh, Glenn, thanks so much. And uh, it really was a labor of love, and I, I've always been moved by how much, especially the greater Gainesville area, uh, reveres Tom Petty and so many of the talented musicians who who are from that area and it and it was really fascinating to be able to flesh out this part of the Beatles history uh that that did have such a direct effect on all of those musicians you mentioned yeah well and really direct effect on on everybody but you've really uh come up with a, a unique story here cuz you you start in an unexpected place, which is great because you just draw the reader in to you know Illinois and a man named John Trusty um, and, of course, uh, John Kennedy. Um, it, so we start actually back in 1963, which kind of sets the stage, if you will, for uh, the Beatles and why it had such an impact. So ex- explain, like, uh, the, the roots of your idea here. Uh, well, I'm the youngest of six kids. Um, so my sister had all of the original Beatles vinyl, so I've been a fan forever. And when I started researching some of my music projects that you mentioned, you, you would hear the Beatles keep coming up. And uh, I knew uh, or became aware that they had played live from the Deauville Hotel on South Beach on their first visit to the United States, which wasn't really a proper tour. And then they came back on this you know, behemoth actual their first North American tour in September to play a historically significant show also. So I mean, all of those factors went into it. And then seeing the importance of the Gator Bowl show that Ron Howard talked about in his eight days a week, the touring years documentary, that all sort of went into why I, I thought, okay, there's a real story here. And I was right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm from South Florida. So, you know, knowing about the Doville and, the history that it had uh, in the Beatles story. It was their second appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, which was live from Miami beach. Uh, and they spent two weeks in Florida. Um, and 
Miami Beach police officer Buddy Dresner. I mean, it's like these are the stories of, of legends about the Beatles and and where they hung out in South Florida. But also some of it was, you know, a bit of mystery, obviously, because they couldn't just be out in public. But yet people did encounter them in that famous Life magazine uh, cover photo of them in the swimming pool. That was uh, shot in, in Florida. So two weeks Oh, yeah, and, and uh, that was far longer than anywhere else in North America that watershed year. And I was lucky enough to do more than 30 primary source interviews. And when you look at the context of all of it, for instance, you talked about that Life magazine shoot. I interviewed all five employees of Life who were involved in that, including John Lowengard, who shot the iconic Life cover, and Gail Cameron, who was the poor reporter who's got to convince John Lennon to have all the Beatles get in that ice-cold swimming pool. It was February. To be on holiday. So that was wonderful. Okay, love, we'll do it, you know, um, to hear her recounting that. But also for, for Gail to put it in the context of coming out of the ashes of Camelot, she was very close to Jackie Kennedy. She was with her in 1960, basically just hanging out at their home in Hyannis as the reports are coming back from the election. So, I mean, Gail knew her well, and you, you know, with those type of contacts, it really gives you a sense of the profound loss that the nation had as a collective after Kennedy's assassination and why the Beatles coming to America was just timed so perfectly. It's like going from Camelot to Kismet. I mean, uh, it it couldn't have been better timing, Uh, really. uh, The nation needed it. Oh, there's no question about it. And and I thought Gail's comments were um, just right on the money where she said it was like, you know, the Beatles were like, it was like it was giving us permission to smile and laugh again. And that's so true. And you you talked about the first... um, guy that I really focus on, John Trusty, who's this Navy man, and he's going to be reporting to Key West, but he's going to go home for a little home leave first. And, you know, it's interesting. He shared this story with me that becomes the main uh, story in the first chapter, almost as an aside. Hmm. And, you know, I, I, I tell journalists this, students, et cetera, people who want to write, you really need to listen actively and not concentrate on your next question because I just caught that. And the way he described it, it was like I could see it in my mind's eye. And it, and it was a pretty amazing image to think this was his reaction to hearing the Beatles for the first time. It's really great. And it really kind of uh, – that was kind of, I think, everybody or, or a lot of people's reaction to hearing them for the first time. You know, like you said, like a breath of fresh air, like, oh, it, it's okay. But, I mean, uh, it was just – you know, the grieving period had had come to a conclusion uh, of sorts, you know, with, with uh, the arrival of the Beatles, which really started before their actual arrival. It's, it's just so many different elements that come together. It was kind of amazing. And the fact that they were booked on The Sullivan Show for three consecutive Sundays, which just marketing brilliance. Um, do you know why they ended up doing the second Sullivan Show for Miami Beach? Why, how did that happen? Uh, Sullivan was a big fan of my. He's called Miami, 
<laughs> and I, I think the sense was, hey, let's go down somewhere where we know it's not going to be quite so cold and miserable and, you know, the Beatles might, um, you know, actually uh, see a little bit more of the real America as opposed to uh, the Plaza Hotel where they were basically prisoners in New York. I'm not saying necessarily all that process went into it, but interviewing Ed Sullivan's grandson who was there, Rob Precht, he, you know, the whole family went down there. So it was kind of almost like a, a vacation type atmosphere for Sullivan's family. And you saw that it, it, there's a picture of uh, Sullivan with his grandsons, with the Beatles. So it was really kind of a family thing. And, and you'd mentioned Buddy Dresner too, the Miami Beach sergeant who was their bodyguard. Talk about a guy like right out of central casting. You know, the, the perfect combination of. You know, he could be the heavy when he needed to be, but he's still only in his mid-30s himself. He could joke around with the guys, and they really came to, to love the guy. They thought he was great. Yeah, there was an actual rapport there, and not just with Buddy, but their, his whole family. I mean, because they welcomed them into their home. Oh, yeah. And, and fortunately for all of us, his son, Barry, actually has his own website called BuddyandTheBeatles.com where he has lovingly put all of this ephemera together. And, and he has a, a lengthy interview with his dad that he was kind enough to give me access to because Buddy passed in the early 2000s. And so here you have this per, first person, all these wonderful accounts of, of Buddy dealing with the Beatles who weren't quite the supernova stars yet, but they were getting there. And it was pretty chaotic, but he, he handled it with, with great skill. And you can see why he ended up being the guy who handled Bob Dylan and the Monkees and Elvis. He just seemed to have a knack for it. It's pretty fortuitous that it ended up being such a vacation-like atmosphere. Cause it did, were they aware of how hardworking the Beatles had been up to that point? I mean, around the rest of the world and Beatlemania uh, the year before in Europe— or, or is it just coincidence that they got this kind of break? Well, it, it, it's funny you say that because I, I think the Beatles themselves kind of put their foot down. You know, they were they were supposed to come down and just, you know, do some photo shoots, be on Sullivan on Sunday night the 16th and fly out the next day. And the Beatles were like, no, we, we want to hang out. We love it here. You know, they'd never seen palm trees, the ocean, beaches the lovely tanned young women who were, you know, all or all around. So it was the Beatles themselves who said, no, we want to stay. And they did stay the rest of the week. And the story of Buddy finding that out is kind of funny, you know, because it was news to him too, not necessarily good news, but he hung in there. So it was the Beatles themselves finally putting their foot down and saying, we need some time off. And this is a good place to do it. Yeah, they did that, but there were still photo shoots and things that went on, and they met Cassius Clay as he's preparing for his first world championship title bout. So there was a lot that went on that week. That's a historic photo shoot in and of itself. The Beatles and, oh, yeah. and Clay was amazing. Yeah, you think about the convergence of these icons of the 60s. In fact, this um, writer with the New York Times I, I interviewed who was there with them, Robert Lipsight, said this was nothing short of the beginning of the 60s to him with the Beatles meeting Cassius Clay for the first time. At Fifth Street Gym, ground zero. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And also the uh, the visual implications of it, the the uh, racial aspect of the '60s can't can't go unnoticed as well. Them and Cassius Clay, and that's an important part of the story of your book. Another character that you bring up, you mentioned Ron Howard's film and and the Gator Bowl. That was a, a really impactful moment from that that brilliant film uh, with with Kitty Oliver. Oh yeah, you. And just generally speaking, you can't tell the story of the Beatles in 1964, Florida, without relating the African-American experience as well. And I think all of the things that were going on here uh, vis-a-vis civil rights with Dr. King being here with Malcolm X, Jackie Robinson, um, there's uh, I think it it, it informed their worldview. And they saw when they came to Miami Beach for the first time that it was segregated. And if, uh, you know, you weren't on stage as an entertainer, you might be flipping burgers or wearing a, you know, maid uniform, but that was about it. And you mentioned Kitty Oliver. Yeah, she was someone who was very moved by hearing the Beatles. And um, she described what Jacksonville was like in her childhood because this was still the pre-Civil Rights Act Florida of the 60s. And it uh, wasn't necessarily a comfortable place for someone um, who was young and African-American. And she had a lot of trepidation about deciding to go to see the Beatles by herself in what she called a zone of uncertainty at the Gator Bowl. But fortunately, uh, things turned out very well for her. Yeah. And she was drawn to the Beatles music like so many uh, young people she could hear the authenticity, their influence and admiration for African-American music. Yeah, and they opened up in Europe for people like Little Richard. And in fact, in my lectures, I show a picture of the young Beatles embracing Little Richard from 62 or 63. And, you know, we would look at that picture today and think, oh, that's cool. Hey, no big deal. Oh, no, it was a big deal for white musicians to be touching a man who happened to be African-American. And there were vignettes like that all along the way. And that's where the Beatles took their historic stand when it came to their first North American tour. And they had it in writing that, look, we are not going to perform before segregated audiences, period. And they all backed that up. And one of the things I'm most proud of is I was able to really do some deep digging and figure out why that did not become an issue at the Gator Bowl, even though it could have. And a lot of it had to do with this very important federal judge who was in Jacksonville by the name of Brian Simpson, who finally threw down the gauntlet and made you know, several very important rulings. And Dr. King comes into the story later also because of the judge and all the totality of events that were going on in northeast Florida. So that's a really important part of the book, too. Yeah. Um, St. Augustine, right? Right, the struggle there and Dr. King coming and being arrested at the Monson Motor Lodge. And, you know, a lot of people are familiar with that, but they're not really sure about what happened to Dr. King after he was arrested. And that is really interesting, too, um, and, and fascinating how it played out. You know, he was held in jail in St. John's and then transferred to Duval County, where a lot of history was made while he was up there. Well, it's it's really it's 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 pretty neat to be able to weave all of this history in and out through telling the story of the Beatles 
in Florida and all of these other things that are happening at the same time and how they're all connected. Yeah, and it, well, that's always been a raison d'etre of mine is people think that no pre-Disney history happened in this region because everybody's attention is elsewhere, at least folks who don't necessarily live down this way. They think, oh, it's all beaches and strip malls and no history happened here, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And the Beatles story is yet another significant uh, chapter of that. This book was not a stretch um, uh, by any means. There, there was a lot of story here as I kept you know, un- uh, uncovering layers, unpeeling layers of the onion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for, for fans of the Beatles or fans of history, it's a great story. Uh, not just the fact that they, oh, they came here, they played a show. No, just they, they stayed here and they kept coming back to Florida. Uh, I mean, John Lennon had a house in West Palm Beach towards the end of his life. He did. He did. And I was lucky enough to interview people like Larry Kane, who was a 21-year-old Miami newsman when he first encountered them, encounters them, ends up getting invited to cover their first entire, first two North American tours. He stays friendly with John Lennon. I mean, it's amazing um, how their friendship evolved. And, you know, we didn't even talk about the Beatles in Key West also. Right. The remarkable few nights they spent there as they, you know, took refuge from Hurricane Dora. You know, yeah, it's um, it, it, it's quite the epic story, <laughs> just in the Sunshine State, just in 64. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really great read and a great title. I love the play on words there, Good Day Sunshine, of course, a song from the Beatles from the Revolver album, and uh, Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. We're talking with Bob Keeling, author of uh, his latest book, just published uh, in early March, and going to be doing a presentation and book signing at the Matheson History Museum in Gainesville, Saturday, March 25th, 4 to 5.30 p.m. It's free with registration, and you can find out more at mathesonmuseum.org slash events. So what have you got planned for uh, the Matheson? What, what, what can people expect? I can't wait to, to get back there. I just saw the wonderful exhibit of uh, surrounding the Southern Music Hall when I was there for Tom Petty Weekend. Uh, in the fall. It's a wonderful museum. And to me, I always feel the extra vibrations of history, knowing that like young Tom Petty at one point in his life went to see the Almond Joys there when it was a, you know, they they would hold little concerts there and things. So the Matheson has its own wonderful history. And I'll be doing a PowerPoint presentation that includes um, a number of points about Gainesville and the Beatles' profound influence there. And even to this day, you just feel Tom Petty's influence all over. And the fact that he is, is just celebrated so widely is, is absolutely appropriate. He's an icon. And to think that he goes from being just another kid watching Ed Sullivan to becoming a bandmate with one of the Beatles and the Traveling Wilburys, that, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Oh, only in America. It's incredible. Right. And, right. Uh, and to be in a band with not just, one, you know, one of your idols, but Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan, um, it's pretty crazy. And he's right there on the iconic level with them, too. You know, it's like an affirmation for him. And, and that's just stunning as well. I was lucky enough to see Tom Petty twice in concert, including one way back 
And I was a kid, and I was lucky enough to get third row center, you know, seats. And this was like 1981. And I'll never forget that. That was an amazing experience. So I have that level of uh, experience with, with Petty and the Heartbreakers as well. So you talk about uh, Tom, but there's other Rock and Roll Hall of Famers from Gainesville, which I, I always like to bring up to folks because uh, so many people don't realize that two of the Eagles were from Florida. And, oh, yeah. You know. And I was lucky enough to interview Bernie Ledden for this book. And uh, he's one of and Tom Ledden is just a wonderful human being. And his story of Tom calling him up out of the blue and saying, yeah, I want to put our garage band back together is just priceless. And that's all in there. Um, so, yeah. Was, and you're right. There are in, in the guys from Leonard Skinner, like Ronnie Van Zandt, was profoundly moved when he saw the Rolling Stones in Jacksonville in 65. And uh, so it's all these guys, uh, uh, Stephen Stills. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Don Felder, all the guys from the Heartbreakers, um, you know, it just goes on and on. And uh, it's quite the fraternity of people who uh, were moved by this tidal wave called the British Invasion in, you know, 64 and 65. Yeah, it, it launched a thousand bands for sure. And your two previous books touch on on this as well. People should definitely seek them out because it was Elvis Presley that initially sparked Petty's interest, and then the Beatles cemented that when he saw them. And then your book about Graham Parsons, because I don't think a lot of folks realize that he hails from Winter Park and spent time in Jacksonville. Uh, so many Florida roots that, that stretch out into um, the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and, and Graham, Graham and his group, the Flying Burrito Brothers, I know that sounds like kind of a goofy name, but they were the forerunners of the Eagles, and they were a profound influence on Tom Petty and those guys. And, you know, Graham was born in Winter Haven, lived there, spent time living in Winter Park. And he and the Almonds, especially, were the first people who went out west and showed people that, you know, guys from Florida aren't crew-cut hicks. And in a way, helped pave the way for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers to just, you know, go out west themselves in the mid-70s and, and find success. Yeah. So that's an interesting part of the story, too. And Graham had a profound impact on Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, too. Absolutely. And, you know, Graham also went to the Bowles School up there in Jacksonville. So he spent a lot of time in Florida. And um, he's just a, he's a really tragic figure in, in the whole scene. You know, he discovered Emmylou Harris. He spent a short time in The Birds. And yet, just as he's starting to take off, his, his life ended um, due to an overdose. But his influence is profound on people oh, yeah. like uh, Tom Petty. So it's interesting to see the progression from like Elvis as the Johnny Appleseed all through Florida because he played tons of concerts here. And then here come the Beatles. And you see, it was no accident that Florida was such a musical state because we were lucky to have these intimate um, encounters with Elvis and the Beatles at the time when they were just catching fire. And so many musicians call Florida home. <laughs> How many live like in Sarasota? It's... Oh, absolutely. And that, I've always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. You know, even even like Southern rock. Well, let's call it Florida rock because that's what it is. When you look at 
there's like four great bands, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the Eagles, you know, Leonard Skinner and the Almond Brothers. All of them have great guitarists who hail from Florida. In fact, they, each band has two guitarists that were either born and bred or have roots in Florida. So uh, that's that's an important part of the story as well, um, how important Florida is to rock and roll. And and we don't have time to talk about it, but we could do uh, a half an hour talking about rhythm and blues and the impact, uh, you know, starting with Ray Charles and uh, oh, up Sam and Dave and uh, yeah. Sam Cooke and the time circuit. that he spent in Miami. No doubt about it. And, and you know, Bo Diddley up there in uh, Alachua County. And, mm-hmm. um, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly. The Chitlin Circuit is another um, really compelling part of the story. And it was like Bernie Ledden said, in and around Gainesville especially, you had what he called this cauldron of creativity mm. because a lot of people came from elsewhere to be part of the university. And then there were locals like, like Tom Petty. And uh, it, it's no accident that that area has spawned so many amazing musicians and artists. Well, what's your next uh, – have you got anything on the horizon? What, what, what are you planning well, I, you know, I, I haven't picked a subject yet, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And uh, right now, I'm just, I'm really enjoying sharing this, this Beatles book. And I think the timing was really good because, um, I, I, you know, about six or seven of the sources I was lucky enough to interview have since passed away since I talked to them for this book. So uh, that's just a really important part is timing it certainly was in this story yeah and we're, we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of that uh fateful two weeks that the beatles spent in florida and you can read about it in the book good day sunshine state how the beatles rocked florida and hear from the author himself bob keeling uh book signing and book presentation at the Matheson Muse- uh, History Museum in Gainesville, Saturday, March 25th, 4 to 5.30 p.m. The event is free, but you do need to register at the, uh, you can find out more information at their website, mathesonmuseum.org slash events, and the it'll be on Zoom as well, so people can, can come live, and if you're worried about being live, you can see it on Zoom. Have you got your own website that people can check out? I've got a Facebook page right now for the book, The Good Good Day Sunshine State. Uh, it's also on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, so that's uh, social media. If, if you know, you're interested in, in um, finding out more about the book, I've got some inside stories, some different folks who appear in it. So there's some nice content to go along with it. But uh, I'm really looking forward to being back at the Matheson and Gainesville. I've, I've got – had such great times there and um, very much looking forward to it. All right. I'm looking forward to it too. Bob, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again. And again, congratulations. Good luck with the book and enjoy it. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you all soon. All right. Good.